0: testing one two three this is Radio Free Mormon on the air broadcasting behind enemy lines tonight's episode that time I got molested as a kid At the end of yesterday's podcast, I announced that today I would be talking publicly about the time I was molested when I was 10 years old. And let me tell you what's been going on behind the scenes since I made that announcement. First off, that announcement came out of nowhere. When I started yesterday's podcast, I had no intention of talking about this incident. And yet, while I was talking about formative experiences in my childhood, I felt I should tell you about this incident. And so I announced that I would. And immediately after I announced that I would, I regretted it. Now, as all of you know, I record my podcast and then I have to spend a lot of time afterward editing it. And I thought about taking out that announcement so that you would not hear me announce that today I would be talking about that incident when I was 10 years old. And if I took out the announcement, then I wouldn't have to talk about it today and I could go on and talk about something else. And nobody would be any the wiser. But I realized that I was second guessing myself and I decided to stick with my first impression that this was something that I needed to tell. The ideas that went through my mind were, number one, nobody wants to hear about this. Number two, why would I tell this to thousands of people on my podcast when over the last 50 years, I have told virtually nobody about this? And what I started to realize was that even though this happened 50 years ago, this incident still has power over me and the power it has over me is the shame that was involved in this incident the shame that it caused me and i began thinking that there are people out there in my listening audience who have had the same or similar things happen to you or those you love and there are those of you who have never told anybody else about what happened to you because you too are ashamed just like i am and then i began to think that one of the reasons that this has such power over me is because I refuse to talk about it. I refuse to name the evil that was done to me. And through my refusing to talk about it because I'm ashamed of it, I continue to allow it to have power over me. I continue to give it power over me. It's like in Harry Potter where nobody will mention the name of Voldemort except for Harry, right? Harry starts mentioning it as the books progress, but nobody else will say his name. They will call him he who must not be named. And I realized as I was reading those books a number of years ago, that even as they were refusing to name Voldemort, they were by that very act of not naming him, giving him increased power over them. And it was Harry Potter who insisted on saying his name that was taking power away from Voldemort and vesting that power in himself. Harry Potter became more powerful through saying Voldemort's name than the other characters who refused to say his name. I don't know how much you may believe in an actual devil. I'm not sure how much I believe in an actual devil anymore. But to the extent that there is a devil, I am sure that he is behind or at least very happy with the evil that men do. And in the category of the evil that men do, there is little evil greater than when people prey upon the weak and the vulnerable for their own satisfaction. And the reason I bring up the devil in this context is because in Shakespeare's play, Henry IV, Part One, Hotspur says, Tell truth and shame the devil. He says it twice. Tell truth and shame the devil. And I think that when it comes to things like this, and children being sexually molested, sexually abused, that when we can find it in ourselves to tell that truth, we shame the devil and we take away his power. And we, through that act, become more powerful ourselves. So at this point in the podcast is where I would normally give a trigger warning because there are many people who are going to be highly triggered by what I'm going to talk about. And if you are one of those people, I encourage you to go ahead and turn off the podcast now. On the other hand, I also think that people who are triggered by the subject may be exactly the people who might benefit the most from listening to this story. Now, I am not a psychologist, okay? I'm just a small-town lawyer, so this advice is worth exactly what you're paying for it. But I think it may be true that the degree to which we are triggered by this subject may also be an indicator of how much power we are still allowing it to have over us. Now obviously, there are going to be some extreme examples of people getting hugely triggered. I'm not trying to say that you should listen to this, I'm just suggesting as a possibility that it is people who get triggered by this subject, i.e., people who have experienced this sort of thing in their own lives, are the people who might benefit the most from listening to this story, and indeed are the people who might benefit the most from speaking their own truth about their own story themselves. Tell truth and shame the devil. I also thought about giving a warning, which I will give now, about having little kids not present to listen to this story. And if you have little kids in the house and you don't want to have them listen to a story about a 10-year-old getting sexually molested, then don't have them listen to it. On the other hand, I also thought that maybe little kids should listen to this story because it can serve as a warning of what can happen to little kids if they are not smart, if they are not educated about these types of things and if they allow themselves to be vulnerable to these types of predators which is what I was when I was 10 and what I did when I was 10. So these are all decisions that you will have to make. My decision is finally I am going to tell this story and I hope it will be a benefit to many of you in some way or other. Now I will tell you at the outset, this is not going to be gruesome, it's not going to be graphic, it's not going to be violent. What happened to me is by comparison to what happens to other children, relatively mild relatively small. And there are some of you who will listen to this story and will think, why are you making such a big deal about it? But there are others of you who will listen to this story who have experienced something like this and will understand exactly why this was such a big deal to me when I was 10 and why it continues to be such a big deal to me when I'm 60. This happened in June of 1970. Today is April 10th 2020. It is Good Friday. In just two months time, It will be June of 2020, and it will actually be 50 years from the date that this happened, back in 1970. And yet, what happened 50 years ago still continues to have some degree of power over me today. Now, it's certainly a lot less power than it had over me when it happened, and even in the years following when it happened. And I'll talk a little bit about this in tonight's episode, too. But 50 years is a long time to be living with this, and I think it's high time that I did What Shakespeare recommends, tell truth and shame the devil. So, let me tell you the story. It is June of 1970. Now, I told you yesterday that my family moved from Texas up to Washington in 1969, and we spent my fourth grade, which was 69 to 70, in a rental house in Kent. At the end of that school year, so that would have been at the end of June 1970, we moved from that rental house several miles away to an apartment building in Kent. It was a large apartment building. There were a lot of units in this apartment and we lived on the third floor in apartment 324. Yes, I can still remember the apartment number. There are a lot of details about this event that I still remember. Having something like this happen to you tends to etch a lot of details in your memory even after 50 years. So as I say, we lived in apartment 324, and typically the way we got to the apartment was we would go through a door in what was called the ground floor. We would open up this door and walk down a long hallway. Halfway down the hallway to the right was a door that led to a stairwell, and you could go up the stairs if you wanted to, to the different floors and get to your apartment that way. But from the ground floor, it was several flights of stairs up to the third floor. So what we usually did was we went further down the hallway to the point where it dead ends. And there, at the end of the hallway, on the right was an elevator. And it was common for us to use the elevator to get up to the third floor, especially when we were helping my mom unload groceries from the store and carry them up to the apartment. Down the same hallway, halfway down, and directly across from the door that led to the stairwell was another door. And I did not know what was behind that door until this particular day. But this was a storage room, which I'll describe to you here in a few minutes. Having laid the groundwork for this, I am at this point still relatively new to Washington and Washington summers. I have lived basically my whole life up to that point in Texas. And one of the things that's remarkable about Washington is that in the summer months, it is light out much later than it is down in Texas. Of course, that's because we're closer to the North Pole. But I was out playing with friends until 9 o'clock, 9.30 at night. I don't know how late it was, but it was finally starting to become dark. There was still light in the sky, but I decided it was time to make my way home, back to apartment 324. All my friends had got home to the various apartments where they lived, leaving me on my own. And as I was walking through the parking lot to that door that led into the ground floor in that hallway that I told you about, a man that I had never seen before came up to me and started talking to me. Now it wasn't strange that it was a man I'd never seen before. I mean basically I hang around with kids and also I'm new to this apartment complex so I wouldn't know anybody anyway. But it was a man who came up to me. He was middle-aged He was white, he was clean-shaven, he had short brown hair, and as he began talking to me, it was clear that he was a handyman of sorts who worked around the apartments fixing things. He told me that he had a little job that he had to do and he asked if I would help him, and then he offered me one dollar if I would help him do his job, whatever that job was. I was raised to respect my elders and to be helpful wherever I could, so I probably would have helped him even without the dollar incentive, but the dollar offer clinched the deal. Sure, I'll help you, I said. Now, he began to walk with me through that same door into the ground-level hallway, and he walked with me halfway down the hallway and through the door on the left. And as we went through the door on the left, I discovered that behind that door were the storage units for all the different apartments in the apartment building. As I say, it was a big apartment building. There were a lot of apartment units, and so there were correspondingly a lot of storage units in this storage area. The storage area had a main hallway that we walked down and off this hallway, there were other hallways that led off and dead-ended either to the left or to the right. And those were the hallways that you would walk down in order to access the different storage units. And there were several of these side aisles. He took me down to the end of the main hallway and then off to the left down one of the side hallways. And once again, these side hallways dead end into the wall. There was only one way in or out of this storage unit and that was through the door that we walked in from the ground floor hallway. So he took me down one of these side aisles, stood me with my back up against one of the storage units, knelt down in front of me and started rubbing my penis with his thumb and forefinger. I don't know what I thought up to this point, but immediately I knew something was wrong. He then asked me, Is that getting hard? Well, I didn't know what he was talking about, but I definitely knew it was not getting hard, and I definitely knew that this was a bad spot to be in and that this should not be happening. At that point, he made his critical mistake. He stood up from his crouched position in front of me, and he walked in front of me further down the aisle. And I say it was his critical mistake because that was the first point at which he was not between me and a way out. So he walked three steps further down that aisle and motioned to me to come follow him. And it was at that point that I turned around and I began to run as fast as I could. I ran down the side aisle to the main aisle, turned right up the main aisle to the storage room door flung it open, ran across the hallway. I immediately thought, do I go left to the elevator? No, I don't go left to the elevator because that's a dead end as well and I got to wait for the elevator. That's not happening. I dashed across the hallway through the door that led to the stairwell and I began running as fast as I could up the stairs in that stairwell and much to my shock, I heard this man running after me. He was running as fast as he could as well to try and catch me. And I knew instinctively that the thing that he was the most worried about was that I would tell anybody. So I was yelling over my shoulder in this echoing stairwell as I ran as fast as I could up the stairs. Don't worry, I won't tell anybody. I won't tell anybody. Now, I do not know what would have happened if he had caught me because he never caught me. He was middle-aged. I was 10 years old and I was scared to death. And believe me, in a foot race, there was no contest. So I got up to the third floor of the stairwell, flung open that door, ran to the right down the hallway to my apartment door, 324, burst through the door of my apartment. There were people at home. I know family was at home. I had to catch my breath. I was totally out of breath. I'm sure I was heaving. I was shocked. I was scared. But nobody to my recollection asked me if anything was wrong. I suppose it wasn't that uncommon for me to come running out of breath into the apartment. But what I did after I caught my breath was I went into the living room and I sat down on the couch opposite the TV. And on the TV was a movie. And to this day, I will never forget what movie it was. It was a movie I've never seen before. I've never seen it since. But it was called After the Fox and it starred Peter Sellers. Once again, when something like this happens to you, you tend to remember a lot of details. But 10-year-old Radio Free Mormon sat on that couch opposite that TV for at least an hour. I wasn't watching the show. I wasn't following the plot. I was in shock. I was trying to figure out what on earth had happened to me, and what on earth was going to happen to me, and what on earth I should do about it. But when you're a kid asking the question, what I should do about it, is really very simple because the answer to that is, you don't do anything about it. The one thing you do about it is, you don't do anything about it. And the one thing you say about it is, you don't say anything about it. I would not tell my mom, I would not tell my dad, I would not tell my brothers, I would not tell anybody about what happened. Because not only had I committed to not telling when I was running up the stairs for crying out loud, but also there was shame associated with it. Now, rationally speaking, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not the bad guy here. That other guy is the bad guy. That middle-aged man who molested me, he's the bad guy. But it doesn't make any sense. This is not a rational response. It is an emotional response and it is a very real response. And that response is absolute and utter shame. I was not going to say this to anybody because I was too ashamed to say it. So at some point, obviously the movie got over. At some point, I made it into the bedroom. At some point, I finally got to sleep. I woke up the next morning, I was still a 10 year old boy and over the coming days things went back to a sense of normalcy. But the problem wasn't just the shame that I felt and the fact that I was never going to tell anybody. The problem was that this guy was still out there and he was a handyman who worked at the same apartment building where I lived. And on top of the shame I felt was the fear that I felt. Because at any time when I was outside playing or doing anything else outside my apartment, He could be there. He could come around the corner and molest me again. But you know, by and large, 10-year-olds can be pretty hardy things. And I did not hole up in the apartment. I continued to play outside. I continued to play with my friends. It was summer and I was 10 years old. But I was always on the alert for this man. And as fate would have it, I did see him again. It was maybe a week or two later. It was during the day and I was sitting actually in the hallway right outside my apartment door. And I was there with some friends and we had some cards and we were in a circle, my back was against the apartment door and we were playing poker. Of course, we're not playing for money but we're just playing poker like 10 year olds will do. And as we're sitting there on the carpeted floor of the hallway outside my apartment, who should come by but this very same man. As I'm sitting there with my back against the apartment, I can still remember he was walking from my left down the hallway in front of me and to the right and he was in company with another guy who was about his same age and I guess that they were both maintenance workers at this apartment complex. And I remember he walked by and I'm facing him, remember my back's against the apartment door. He walks by, he looks over at me, I look up at him, we make eye contact. I was shocked to see him but not surprised. I knew that I was right there by my apartment and all my friends were present, so I knew that I was safe. He wasn't going to do anything to me there. But as he walked by and we made eye contact, I gave him a knowing and conspiratorial nod, as if to communicate to him that his secret was safe with me. I had not told anybody. I was not going to tell anybody. And so he didn't need to worry about it. This was in the past. This was a secret that he and I shared. I would go to my grave with it. So you might think that was the end of the story. And it is the end of the story for many people because many people never tell. I ended up telling. But I did not tell my parents. I did not tell my brothers. I did not tell my friends. I told somebody who was a friend of my big brother. Now, once again, my big brother was five years older than I was. I was 10 at the time, so he was 15. So his friend was probably 15 or 16 as well. His name was Dennis Chauncey And Dennis Chauncey lived with his family in another apartment down the hallway on the third floor of the Village Green Apartments. And for some reason, I was over at his apartment, and you know, as I think back on it, I was interested in magic at the time. And Dennis Chauncey showed me a magic trick. It was a card trick. It was frankly one of the best card tricks that I've ever learned. And I can still remember the card trick and how to do it to this day. But it was Dennis Chauncey who showed me this card trick. So maybe that was the connection that we had and why I was over at his apartment on this particular day. But I remember screwing up my courage and telling Dennis Chauncey about what had happened to me down in the storage unit on the ground floor. And he listened very carefully. He did not disbelieve what I said. He didn't say I must be kidding. But what he said was, you need to tell your parents about this. And if you don't tell your parents, I will. I remember years later, my mom saying that she really didn't have a lot of use for Dennis Chauncey. He was kind of rough around the edges. She didn't like my big brother being friends with him and hanging out with him, but she will always be thankful to him that that is what he told me because that was the impetus that I needed to tell my parents because obviously, either I tell them or Dennis is going to. They're going to find out either way. So I told them and I told them that night. I got them in the living room and I told them about what had happened to me and that ended up starting act two of the nightmare because act two was my parents called the police of course they called the police and there was a detective who came out to our apartment building 324 at the village green apartments in kent washington and he was out there pretty quickly he was there in the living room he asked me questions and i had to tell him the story again now this was incredibly painful for me and incredibly shameful for me to have to tell this story over and over and over again, which is what ended up happening. And I had to tell it to strangers, like the detective. It was bad enough telling it to my parents. It was even worse telling it to the stranger. And I had to tell them what this man had done to me. Now, once again, compared to other people, what happened to me was relatively minor. But words cannot express how ashamed I felt every time I had to say it, and every time I even had to think about having to say it again. But I told the detective what had happened to me and he asked for a description of the man and I gave him a description as best as I could. And frankly, when I think about this now, that was not a detective who came to the apartment. It must have been a police officer because a few days later, I had to go down to the Kent Police Department. My dad took me, of course, down to the Kent Police Department and I had to repeat the story again to two other officers and I'm sure that those were the two detectives. They were in plain clothes. They were wearing suits and ties. So I told it to Dennis, then I had to tell it to my parents, then I had to tell it to a police officer, and then I had to go down to the police department and tell it to two detectives. It was horribly embarrassing, this entire experience. Getting molested was bad enough, but having to retell the experience over and over to these different people was almost as bad as getting molested in the first place. But it didn't stop there, because fortunately, in retrospect, they caught the guy. And the way I found out about it, was when I was invited down once again to the police station to see if I could identify this guy In a lineup now I don't have to tell my story again so I'm not ashamed of going down to view the lineup instead I'm terrified to go down to this lineup because now he's gonna know that I squealed and he's gonna see me there and he's gonna know that I'm the one that told on him I remember going down to this room that they had where they did the lineups and there was no glass in between me and the people who would be up there on this platform where the lineup would be held instead where the audience sat and where I sat with my dad and the detective was in darkness and they had bright lights shining up there on the platform with the idea of course that if you're on the platform looking into those bright lights you can't see anything beyond the bright lights and you can't see anybody seated in the dark room behind those bright lights. To a ten-year-old all those kinds of things and physics and bright lights and not being able to see behind them Are lost believe me I didn't understand that I didn't get that all I knew was I was sitting there and they were going to be bringing out six guys one of which would probably be the guy who had molested me and there would be nothing in between us I could see him clearly and so I felt that he could see me just as clearly well they brought out six guys up on the platform and yes the guy who molested me was one of them he was number four (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing, it's horrible, But, but the details that you remember. Yes, he was number four, and through this process, I learned that his name was Robert Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, Robert Lyons, number four in the lineup. And I identified him to the officer, and obviously I'd picked out the right guy. I mean, it wasn't even close. This was obviously the same man, number four. And ever since that day, I figured that if I have an unlucky number, it must be number four. But then again, taking that same idea and turning it around and taking my power back, actually, that was Robert Lyons' unlucky number because that was the number that he was under when a 10-year-old, positively identified him as being a child molester but it still wasn't over because now there was going to have to be a trial and I was going to have to appear in court in the same room with Robert Lyons and there weren't going to be any bright lights in his eyes. He was going to see me sitting there on the stand and I knew from talking to the prosecutor for whom I had to repeat the story once again that not only was I going to be in the same room with Robert Lyons, I was gonna to have to actually sit there in front of him, and when the prosecutor told me to identify the man who had molested me, I was gonna to have to actually raise my hand and point him out to everybody in the courtroom. Well, as you know, and as I've learned through a 30-year career in the law, these things do not happen overnight. And my recollection is it was actually at least a couple of months before this hearing took place so whereas i was molested at the beginning of the summer of 1970 i think this hearing took place at the end of the summer of 1970 so what that means is i had an entire summer not only to experience the shame of telling my story repeatedly to complete strangers but also to anticipate and dread the upcoming hearing where i would have to be in court With Robert Lyons and point him out in front of everybody including Robert Lyons he would see me pointing him out he would know that I told and boy did I tell and I was telling it in a public courtroom now as a 10 year old I was familiar with the story of Tom Sawyer pretty much everybody knows the story of Tom Sawyer and I had seen an adaptation of the story on TV and all I could think about the entire summer was the scene in Tom Sawyer where he is in a courtroom and he is up on the stand and he is testifying against Injun Joe because Tom Sawyer is the one who knows that Injun Joe is really the guy who murdered Doc Robinson. It wasn't Muff Potter like everybody thought, it was Injun Joe and Tom Sawyer is in a courtroom. He's seated up on the witness stand in this big wooden chair and he's testifying and telling everybody the secret about what he saw and he's asked by the attorney to identify Injun Joe. And Tom Sawyer is scared. And he points out Injun Joe in the courtroom. And at that point in the proceedings, if you recall, Injun Joe stands up and throws a big knife at Tom Sawyer, which narrowly misses him and sticks in the wooden chair right above his head. Injun Joe then yells, I'm gonna kill you, Tom Sawyer. And then he runs to the window, bursts through the glass window, hits the ground outside the courthouse, rolls. He's up and running. Nobody catches him and he makes it to the woods where he continues to lurk In the background. Tom Sawyer has now done the ultimate bad thing he has told on Injun Joe. He has identified him in a courtroom. Injun Joe tries to kill him and fails, swears he will kill him, and then he manages to escape and run off into the woods. And as silly as this may sound now, I will tell you it was not silly at the time because I repeated that scene over and over in my head. Except it wasn't Tom Sawyer sitting on the stand. It was me. It was ten-year-old Radio Free Mormon. And it wasn't Injun Joe sitting there at the table in the courtroom next to his lawyer. It was Robert Lyons. And my great fear was that what happened to Tom Sawyer is exactly what would play out in the courtroom with me. That I would go through this process scared as I was and do the deed and identify him as the man who molested me, and then somehow he would manage to escape. It might not get as dramatic as throwing a knife at me, but he would manage to escape, and then he would be out there, in the woods, somewhere, waiting and plotting his revenge on me. So finally, the end of summer came, and my parents took me down to the courthouse in Seattle, Washington. We drove to the courthouse, my parents sat in the audience, in the courtroom. I'm sure the prosecutor kept me away from Robert Lyons as much as possible and out of his sight, but the time came when I did have to take the stand and testify. And I told everybody exactly what had happened, just the way I told you. But the problem is, is that Robert Lyons is sitting right over there and I am terrified. The prosecutor told me I could just look at him and that I should just look at him and not look over at Robert Lyons. But the time did come at the end of my testimony or somewhere in between where the prosecutor asked me, as he told me he would, to identify Robert Lyons for the court. And I looked over. We made eye contact again. But instead of a conspiratorial nod that I gave him, indicating I was going to keep the secret, I raised my hand, pointed my finger at him and said, That's the man sitting right there. Well, as difficult an experience as it was, it was eventually over. The hearing concluded, I left the courtroom with my parents and we drove back to our apartment. I remember that when I had testified, I testified to everything that I told you today, including the second encounter with Robert Lyons when I was seated outside the apartment door on the floor with my friends playing poker when I saw Robert Lyons walk by. And it was later that day after the hearing that my dad told me, that when I came to that part of my story, the judge who was seated up there in his big chair listening to me had to suppress a smile. I guess there is something humorous about the image of 10-year-old boy sitting around in a circle and playing poker. So I never saw Robert Lyons again after that, but his ghost still haunted me for years and years. Now, in retrospect, this was not a trial, at least it was not a trial where there was a jury present. There was no jury in the courtroom. It seemed to have been more of a hearing, and from the bits and pieces that I heard, and as best as I could understand them as a 10-year-old, my recollection is that Robert Lyons had already been convicted of child molestation in the state of Idaho, and he had been convicted there many years before, and he had gotten out on parole, and part of his parole was that he maintained residence in the state of Idaho, that he had broken his parole by leaving Idaho and coming over to Washington where he molested me. And so the hearing that we had wasn't so much about a new charge for his molesting me as it was a hearing about his violating his parole. Well, these were decisions made obviously by people other than myself. But my understanding is that Robert Lyons was returned to Idaho and returned to prison in Idaho for breaking his parole and for sexually molesting me. But as I say, that wasn't the end of it because I continued to think on pretty much a daily basis that Robert Lyons was now in prison in Idaho, but he wouldn't be in prison forever. The day would come when he would get out. And when he got out, he would come looking for the little boy who put him there in the first place. And that little boy was me. I imagined him in his prison cell Every day, working out, working out, concentrating on my face so he would not forget how I looked. So that when the day came that he got out, he would come back to Washington again, track me down, and just like Injun Joe tried to do to Tom Sawyer, he would have his revenge. I lived in fear of this for years. Now obviously, for the very first few weeks and months after the hearing, I thought about it on a daily basis. I could not go to sleep at night without thinking about this scenario. But as will happen, as time goes on, I thought about it less and less, and it didn't occur to me every night. It occurred to me maybe every other night, then every week, and then maybe every month, but I don't think it ever got less than every month, at least as long as I was a teenager. Now, you may remember from yesterday's podcast when I told you about what I called the worst summer of my life, the summer of 1972, when I, my brother Cam, the second oldest boy, and my mom, who was separated from my dad, spent the entire summer in a little house down in Rockport, Texas. You know, in retrospect, it's funny that I considered the summer of 1972 the worst summer of my childhood, when after telling this story, I think that the summer of 1970 probably beats it hands down. But anyway, back to the end of the summer of 1972, the end of our stay in Rockport, Texas. My parents got reconciled again. They always ended up getting reconciled after a separation. They never got divorced. But at the end of the summer, We went back to Washington, and we didn't fly to Washington, and I think we didn't fly because we had the family car. So what we had to do was to actually drive from Rockport, Texas, all the way back to Kent, Washington. Now, my mom was not the greatest driver in the world, and me and my brother, I was 12, he would have been 13, were not the best navigators. So we ended up getting a little bit lost. The route we took between Texas and Washington was not exactly the most direct route. And we ended up going to Washington from Texas by way of Idaho. And we stopped for the night in a little motel in Twin Falls, Idaho. Now we got there at the end of a day of driving and we left there the next morning to begin another day of driving. We were there for only one night. But I will tell you that was one of the scariest nights. I have ever spent. Now it has been at this point two years since I was molested. I was molested in the summer of 1970. It is now the end of the summer of 1972 and we end up, because my mom gets a little bit lost, spending the night in a hotel in Idaho. And what I know that night is that now I am in Idaho. I am in the state that Robert Lyons lives. I am in his territory. I am in his backyard. And even though it was completely irrational, and even though I, even as a 12-year-old, realized it was completely irrational, nevertheless, I was sure in my heart that somehow Robert Lyons knew that I was in his state of Idaho. He knew where I was in this little motel, and he would show up there to wreak his revenge, not only on me, but also on my brother and on my mother well obviously that did not happen we got up the next morning we got on the road and we made our way back to washington and i was a very happy little boy to put idaho in the rear view mirror but even for years after that I would have recurring thoughts and recurring fears about Robert Lyons because, on the one hand, even though as the years passed and I got further away from the incident, the power of the incident had less effect upon me. On the other hand, I also knew that as more time went by, it was more likely that Robert Lyons was getting closer and closer to finishing his prison sentence and would be out and able to come over to Washington to hunt me down. In fact, that was one of the problems. I had no idea when he was in prison, when he was out of prison, how long he would be in prison, and I was left to guess whether he was out of prison yet or not. But I turned 16, I turned 17, I turned 18, and I continued to think from time to time about Robert Lyons. But the fact was, is that I was getting bigger. I was getting stronger. I was no longer a vulnerable ten-year-old boy. I was becoming bigger and I was becoming a person who if Robert Lyons ever did hunt me down and show up on my doorstep, the tables might well be turned and I would be the one who could put the hurt on him. So I remember that when I would think about him, I would almost think, yeah, I hope he shows up at my doorstep because things are going to be different this time and he's not going to be walking away from this encounter. And so that is a story of how I was molested when I was 10 years old and that is the story of the aftermath of and the ramifications which continue to echo down the years. It is a story that I have told to virtually nobody in the past 50 years since it happened, except for those people that I was compelled to tell over and over back during the summer of 1970. Today is Good Friday. Today is the day on which we commemorate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it occurs to me that crucifixion was horrible on a number of different levels. Not only was it perhaps the most agonizing form of execution ever devised by the mind of men. But on top of that, it was also shameful because the person on the cross and Jesus on the cross was stripped of his clothes and crucified entirely naked. When we see pictures of the crucifixion or perhaps crucifixes themselves, he will almost always have at least some kind of loincloth on to cover himself. But during the actual crucifixion, people did not even have a loincloth. They were completely naked. And that was part of the shame of crucifixion. Not only was it agonizing physically, it was shameful. And after Jesus' death, after the agony and the shame, he was taken and put into a tomb where he could be by himself, where he could be sealed off from the world, where he would not have to share his shame with anyone else. And to extend the metaphor a bit, It is very common for people who have been sexually molested and sexually abused to be put into a tomb. They put themselves into a tomb in some respects, but in other respects the event itself puts them into a tomb. It puts them into a cave where they voluntarily sit in darkness, seal themselves off from the outside, and they refuse to share what happened with anybody else. Because sharing it, once again, renews those feelings of shame. But Jesus did not stay forever in that tomb. He did not stay forever in that cave. Because as the Bible tells us, after three days, the stone was rolled away from the door of that tomb. And Jesus came forth and was resurrected. Well, by telling my story about what happened to me when I was 10 years old, I feel that, in some sense, I am also coming out of the dark tomb. I am, in some sense, being resurrected. I am, in some sense, reclaiming the power from Robert Lyons, who was the one who put me in that tomb in the first place, by what he did to me 50 years ago. And my hope is that if there's anybody out there who's listening to this podcast And you yourself are in that darkened cave. If you have experienced something like this, if something like this has been done to you, if you have been trapped in a darkened tomb for a week, a month, a year, 10 years, even 50 years like me, that maybe this podcast will give you the comfort, give you the encouragement, and perhaps even give you the ability to take back that power by coming out of your cave, by coming out of your tomb, by being metaphorically resurrected and being able to share your story with other people. Tell truth and shame the devil. Well, that's about all I have for you tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.
1: I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running ever since. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living, but I know Beyond the sky It's been a long A long time coming But I know